Thank you, Jedediah and team. Good morning again. Happy New Year. I didn't get to see you all this past Sunday. Um, so uh, a little bit of a, a New Year greeting from this first time. Um, and uh, wanted to start our new series off with a question. Challenging uh, question about have you ever been in a place where, where something so painful and difficult has happened to you? Uh, perhaps a loss or a, or a diagnosis where something has been so difficult that you have come to the conclusion that God has given up on you. Ever? Uh, in the new year, one of my daughters so graciously shared first a head cold and then the stomach flu with me. <laughs> and I was pretty sure that God had given up on me in the new year. I'm only exaggerating a little because it was horrible, right? But more seriously, there, there's times I've experienced personally, but then also walked with a number of folks where, where the, the, the pain is real, the pain influences. A, a friend who was so devout and diligent and, and prayed so hard for her marriage to survive. And yet it did not. She said to me at one point, I'm not so sure that God is who we think he is. Another friend who experienced an unexpected loss, in this case it was a spouse, lost that spouse, wasn't seen said, I, I'm unsure if I'm going to make it through intact with my faith. I'm not sure. Sometimes it's a season. Sometimes it's a, a combination of things. And another friend, he, he had lost his job, not uh, this past year, but previous, lost his job, had a health diagnosis, and then he got in a car accident. It was like the trifecta, and he's like, I, I think someone upstairs is like, like out to get me, like there, there's a, a, a structured strategy plan, right? In those moments that can be so difficult, those are, those are faith-altering moments in our lives. Sometimes they alter the, our faith for good, but sometimes for bad. And it's in those moments and how we respond to those moments that can make such a, such a difference. What we choose to believe for in those moments. The, the decisions that we make in those moments can alter our faith for good or for bad. It, they can diminish our faith, damage our faith or actually develop and deepen our faith. 
I was thinking about the story of Job. The, he is the, the classic figure in not only scripture, but really all of literature in, in terms of suffering, right? And, and so a very long book, and a, a, an in-depth book of a person who loses everything. And we look at his response and what he chooses, how he prays and how he responds. What is much less known is the response of his wife who experienced not quite as much as loss as Job did, but a lot. And we only get a couple of verses of her response, and her response is not really awesome. Her response is Job 2, 9. Job is sitting on the ash heap, clinging to his faith, and she says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. I'm not so sure that was the Spirit of Christ speaking through Mrs. Job, right? There there was a response there, praise God, that, that Job has a different response. This morning we're beginning a journey in the book of Daniel, which I'm excited about. I would say that the book of Daniel is one of my top three favorite Old Testament books. It's just a, it's a, a neat book. It's got so many qualities to it. It's got, as we get into it, it's got some prophetic or uh, apocalyptic elements where there's mystery and there is the spiritual realm entering the physical realm and, and God is communicating what he's doing. So there's just tremendous things. We get to do timelines and stuff, which you know I like, right? So we get all these cool stuff. And yet at the same time, in the midst of all of that is a, 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 a true story, a real story, a, a, a historical narrative that involves real people with, with real life issues, real questions about life and God and faith. And, and they ask those tough questions and they, and they relate and they live in the different way. I think God has so much that he wants to teach us in this new year through this book. And I believe, for example, that probably many of of the children of God, many Israelites that were living at Daniel's time were at a place that they were pretty sure that God had given up on them. Let them go as a people and as individuals. In Daniel's day, it was not a good time to be an Israelite. It was a really challenging time time because Daniel's story, it begins with the story of his people being conquered. That uh, about a, a hundred years plus prior to Daniel, there were two kingdoms of Israel, kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah. And in 722 BC, the, the big bully of the region was Assyria and they came in and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And yet within the northern kingdom, didn't have Jerusalem, didn't have the temple of God, wasn't the, the heartbeat of, of the nation of, of Israel or, or, or Judah. Even though the, the bigger kingdom was conquered, they still had Jerusalem and the temple and Judah. They were still a nation. 
And yet, probably when Daniel was only a teenager, in 605 BC, the new bully on the block, the Babylonians laid siege to the city of David. And they conquered it. It was given over. The the city of God fell. And a foreign pagan king takes power and control. And worse yet, he says, you know what? I'm going to take some of the best of your young folks and I'm going to take them from their homes and their family and I'm going to bring them to the capital and I'm going to put them in my service. Could you imagine what would have happened? The perspective of your, our entire nation being conquered. Let's just read the opening verses, the first half of the story of Daniel, trying to enter into their experience. This is Daniel again. This is 605 B.C. when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, conquers Jerusalem. It says, verse 1, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. So the temple was an established uh, structure. It was the center of their worship. They had had articles of gold and so forth that were sacred, that were part of the rituals. And Nebuchadnezzar enters in, takes the sacred objects of the temple of God and imports them. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure house of his God. Then the kingdom ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude of every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among them who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, uh, the name Belshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Let's pause there for just a moment and imagine what Daniel and friends 
would have gone through at this moment. They were probably part of the nobility. They were probably teenagers. They were kind of in the upper echelon of their culture and society. They saw themselves as the children of God, children of Israel. The temple was at the center of their worship and expression, probably experiencing wealth and favor. And all of a sudden, dramatically, times change. I call this... Um, I, I like to think about it as the reverse Wizard of, Wizard of Oz experience, all right, where, remember the, the, the famous scene where she says, we're not in Kansas anymore, right? Well, I thought we might as well just watch it real quickly. Just, it's, a, it's real, just kind of our New Year's video for this. It's... Toto? Feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We must be over the rainbow. But it's the reverse, right? It's not going from black and white to living color. It's going from Oz, living color, to black and white. Everything they know and love, everything they believe to be true, has been stripped away from them. Can you imagine their captors and what they said in these, this indoctrination, right? That they said, you are no longer Jews. That is done. The God that you worshipped, obviously, you can understand that he is no God at all. Who won? Our God's won. Right? You, you can hear that. Can you imagine them going to sleep at night and going, what do I, I do? I'm, I'm hundreds of thousands of miles from the people I, I love and we're, we're a conquered People, now we're, we're learning a language that has no clue of the one true living God. Certainly, God, if he's there, has given up on us. Now, amazingly, Daniel doesn't come to that conclusion. In this crucial moment in his life and faith, verse 8, it says, But Daniel, everything is going south. Everything is being lost. Pain and struggle. Look at verse 8 with me. But Daniel resolved but Daniel resolved not to defile himself the royal food and wine he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion 
to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would, ha- uh, would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Now, let's pause again for a moment there. And let's just take note of of what is happening with Daniel. Even though all has been lost, The circumstances say, indeed, God has given up on them. And yet, we don't really know the reasons why or the motivations behind Daniel or what gives him this internal fortitude and strength. But what we recognize is that Daniel does not give up on God. Whether he believes God has given up on him personally or his people, we don't really know. I have a suspicion that he doesn't. But Daniel makes this decision despite the tremendous loss and the exile and everything he knows, despite being in the midst of paganism and really cruelty, he does not Give up on God. And I want to suggest that that this decision potentially was for for two reasons that I think would be helpful and instructional for us when we get at that point. When all circumstance is challenging our faith and we're challenged that our faith would be diminished. I, I have to think that Daniel turned to two things. He turned to the revelation of God, the truth or scripture of God, and he turned to the character of his God. That beyond, see, I think there's a a trap here that oftentimes we allow circumstance and suffering to inform our faith more so than revelation and the character of God. Daniel does not do that. What he does, I'm I'm guessing we're we're actually, we're in some ways left to to fill in the blanks, but but Daniel, it, it says, but Daniel, and I'm guessing that Daniel would have known to a certain degree, all that God had said up to this point in the history of the people of God. And God had said a lot through his prophets. When, when the nation fell, the, the northern nation, a uh, hundred plus years before Daniel, God was saying through the prophets, he's saying, listen, people, I love you and you are doing it wrong. You are not living it right. 
Yeah, I, I, when I created the covenant at, at, at Mount Sinai with you as a people, I said, listen, I will be your God and you will be my people. And, and it's a beautiful picture. But if you do not live within the covenant that I have with you, it will go bad. Believe me, I will allow it to go bad. In the northern kingdom, they were committing uh, idolatry, which was essentially adultery against the Lord. They were, they were breaking Sabbath. They were, they were doing all the, They were uh, promoting injustice. They were taking advantage of their neighbors. They were doing all these things. And God is saying, this is not okay. Listen to me. The northern nation did not listen and they fell. And he said to the people, listen, you live in Jerusalem and you're in Judah, great, but learn from your brothers and sisters. And they did not. In fact, we see in uh, Isaiah, just one example, uh, when the, the king uh, of uh, Judah, I believe, he, he shows a foreign nation the objects of the temple. And that was a significant no-no in hundreds of years before the fall of the southern kingdom. God said this through Isaiah. He says, the time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord, and some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. If Daniel knew this, he wouldn't have got, well, oh, I, I wonder if God, I guess God doesn't have control over history. I guess this caught God by surprise. I guess the Babylonian gods are stronger than him. No. He looked at God's revelation and what God was saying in the circumstance. And he was saying, okay, I see it. I understand. See, here's the important point. Again, going back to this idea of that so easy for us as people is to allow present circumstance to tell us who God is. That, that's human nature, isn't it? That we look around and we say, ouch, I... And yet God says, no, don't do that. In, flat, in fact, the, the response that Job gives to his, uh, his wife is this. The, the first part's perhaps not the best. He says, you are talking like a foolish woman. But let's focus on the second part. He says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Job did not sin in what he said. I, I love the pairing of Job and Daniel because Daniel and the people, they were experiencing all this loss and pain it seems very evident from Scripture because of their sin, not so Job. 
Job's wasn't punishment. You can't just say, oh, well, it's because, so don't sin and you won't do suffer. No, God even allows suffering in Job's life who, who was living it right. And he had some kingdom purposes in there. Job was looking to the kingdom purposes. Daniel was looking to the kingdom purposes. I have to guess that Daniel was, was trusting in what God had said, what God was saying, and was allowing that to inform his beliefs and his decisions. And Daniel does more than that. Daniel doesn't just not give up on God, but Daniel decides to live it God's way, which I think is absolutely beautiful. He says, even though I've lost everything I know, I don't know really how to do this, this life with God apart and away from the center of my faith, which is the temple and the city of David. I'm going to figure out somehow to live for God in this God-forsaken place. Amazing that is. And, and what he chooses, what we're told, I'm sure there's more to the stories, he chooses what he's going to eat and drink as a way, as a rhythm to live for God in this God-forsaken place. Some say, well, it's kosher law. So that was part of his faith, right? What was what they ate and what they drink. But it doesn't necessarily match kosher laws. Like there's no prohibition against wine as a drink. And yet Daniel chooses to make how he lives related to food and drink. And I think it has to do, look at verse 5. They were receiving food. They were coming into the food, into the service of the king, and they were receiving their food and their wine from the king's table. A powerful statement that you are, for, that you are fed and that you are nourished by Nebuchadnezzar the king. And Daniel, perhaps in prayer and seeking out and crying out to God, he says, let me do vegetables and water. Let me build this discipline in as a, as a daily reminder several times a day that I am not fed and nourished and sustained from King Nebuchadnezzar's table, but from God. That my life flows not from the king's table, but from the king's throne room, the throne room of God. He takes that and builds that in. And then he trusts God to meet him in that moment. I was thinking of the, the character of God in the prophet Joel when this was, everything was lost, there would actually be in Daniel's lifetime three exiles and the final one would be the destruction of the temple. 
right? So it would be kind of a progressive removing of all this. And, and Joel was speaking to the, to the exiled people of God um, wherever they may be found in Jerusalem or outside of Jerusalem. And he says this, even now, declares the Lord, even now return to me with your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart and not your garments. What he's saying is, I'm talking about real turning of your heart. I'm not talking about just the, the outward rituals of faith. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for you to be religious. I'm looking for your hearts. That you begin to live in a different way. Return to me with all of your heart. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Do you see what Joel is doing? Is he's reminding the people of God of who he is. He's told you, don't let circumstance determine your view of who God is and the relationship that he wants to have from you. But who is God? He's a God who's abounding in love. He's a God who's gracious and compassionate. He's a God who's for you. Yes, he gets angry at the sin, but he's giving you again invitation after invitation. If you turn your heart, I will meet you there. If you desire to live for me in whatever circumstance you find in life, I will meet you there. And I love the story, the, the latter part of the story, because there's a little bit of a risk. And I like to ask the question, not only how are the people responding in the scripture, but what does God do? How does God respond to the beliefs, the faith, the faith, the actions of the people. How does he respond to Daniel with this desire to only eat vegetables and and drink water? You'd think, boy, that would be a silver lining. I'm exiled. At least I get to eat from the king's table. No, he takes out that and he turns his heart. How does God respond? Let's let's read. Pick it up at verse. 15, a 10-day challenge. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the, guard, so the guard took away their choice food and wine. Thanks, guard. They were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Now listen. God not only backs Daniel and friends play, but I think he shows off a little bit. Verse 17, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. 
And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them and found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and the enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Do you think that the 10 times has any significance in the story? You know, 10 is repeated in that story. There was 10, it was a 10-day test, right, that Daniel suggested. So I think God said, hmm, 10 days? Okay. I'm not going to make you twice as better as all the others. I'm not going to make you three times more knowledgeable and filled with wisdom and understanding. For every day that you invited and turned your heart and asked, I'm going to make you 10 times better than anyone else. I'm going to put Nebuchadnezzar's jaw on the ground with how gifted you guys are. Was God showing off a little bit in that way? Yes. He was like, oh, Daniel and friends, they're, they're turning to me. They're, they're taking their hearts and saying, God, how do we live for you in this circumstance? And he says, okay, all right. I, I will meet you in this place. I want to encourage us this morning where is there in your life that you need to turn your heart to God and trust Him to back your play? I know none of us are living in the conditions of pain and difficulty, right, that, that Daniel and friends were, but where in that is it? Is it some of us, maybe it's, a, it's an ungodly environment at work. And, and we see our co-workers living with a lack of integrity. And God is inviting, inviting us to say, I, I'm calling you to live it differently. I'm calling you to live, even though it might be difficult, even though it might be challenging, would you live for me in that circumstance? I know some of us are in marriages where the other person isn't a believer, right? And, and, and it can be challenging and some of their lives and ways are not honoring God. What does it look like to you not go with the flow but to live for Christ in that context? For some of us, our, our friends or our extended family that we, we just spent time with, you would not consider them 
a Christian environment, right? Maybe that it looks a little bit more Babylonian than kingdom of God. And what is God inviting you to find a way to live differently into that place? If I can share just a, a, a few moments very personally, um, uh, probably the hardest moments in my life the, when I felt like God was, well, I was wondering if God had given up on me was through the divorce and feeling there was so much that was ungodly, just the whole divorce pro process, the whole child custody process, just the whole, it was just all horrible to me. And I had accusations and, and dishonesty and manipulation and things were just raging around me. And I was complaining, God, what is going on? What is happening? Don't you see? I prayed for you to change hearts and you haven't done that. And now you're leaving me in this place. And you know what I felt? One of the primary things he said to me. I felt like he said, you know, God, just because others are sinning against you doesn't give you the right to sin against them. That was not the answer I was looking for. I wanted him to change my circumstances. I wanted him to fix it. And instead he said, no. I'm, no, you don't. When you stand before me, you don't get to say, well, yeah, I did that, but you know what they did to me. They deserved it. We don't get to say that before God, right? Daniel figured out that he doesn't get to say, well, yeah, God, I did that, but look, you took me from my home and my family and you put me in Nebuchadnezzar's royal palace with nothing? Of course I went with the flow. Of course I did. He said, no, no. Okay, God, I, I don't know how it's going to work. But I'm going to live for you in this circumstance. What is the thing? What, those are all justifications and excuses. And God is not looking for justifications and excuses. He's looking for the people that go, okay, I don't get it all, but I'm going to turn my heart to you, God. And I'm going to live for you in this circumstance. And God, would you, would you back my play? Would you back my play? I'm hurting. Would you back my play? One more thing before we leave this first chapter is I love the way Daniel 
changes and challenges his culture. He doesn't get a picket sign and he doesn't start picketing at that. He doesn't create a rebellion and start talking about how horrible King Nebuchadnezzar is, right? He doesn't collect, no, he doesn't do any of that. What does he do? The guy who's the Babylonian in charge, he says, listen, would you allow me to, to live it in a slightly different way? Would you allow? And then he listens, and the, and the Babylonian's like, hey, no way, man. If, you, if you're weakly, I, it's my head, literally, right? Okay, can, can, we, can we do a test? Can we? He chooses, rather, I'm calling it this, he, he decides to witness rather than condemn. He chooses to love the Babylonian in charge of him rather than argue and fight and, and, and push against. He, he finds a way to give testimony to the one true living God even in the midst of a culture that's so foreign. This, this gives a, I want us to unpack this for, for just a moment. The, there's this idea, which is actually, you had the reverse of the Wizard of Oz. This relates to actually the direction of Wizard of Oz. What Daniel and friends was doing is that they were living as citizens in the kingdom of God in a foreign land. And that is instructive for us. This is not just an Old Testament con concept, it's more of a New Testament concept, actually, is that it is that the, the kingdom of heaven is no longer bound by geography. Let me use this illustration. You, you met Calvin, and Calvin and Karen were, were talking about the uh, second best class that we're offering, or maybe Marilyn, third best class. Yeah, their third best class that we're, that we're offering. And, and so Calvin, did you know that Calvin, he has a, a tri-citizenship? He has tried. Did you know that? So first, it's New Zealand. Then he's become a full citizen of the United States. And then Australia. No, I'm just kidding. He's not. But if you call him Kevin from Australia, he really likes that. No. <laughs> but what's his third citizenship? Heaven. The kingdom of heaven. That when, when Calvin asked Christ into his life, there's an element of waking up in Oz. He was no longer in Kansas or New Zealand or in Colorado. He was in the reality of the kingdom of heaven and the rules and the ways and the rituals have changed. In fact, Peter says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. 
Where are they, foreigners and exiles? It didn't matter. He's, he's writing to all over the known world, to Christians there. He's saying they're foreign and exiles because their true home is heaven and the reality of heaven. He's saying to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against the, your soul. He's saying don't live as citizens in the country that, that you're part of. Your, your primary your primary citizenship is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't matter if you're in Jerusalem, right? Or, or Babylon, or Colorado, or Australia. It doesn't matter. You live there. You can talk about black culture, or Indian culture, or American culture, or the culture of my workplace. All of that is fine. Those cultural things. But what God is going is he's looking for you to live within the culture of the kingdom of heaven. To see it because it's a culture of vibrant color and life. It's a culture where God backs our play and meets us there and knows us and works out the details of our lives as we try and turn our hearts towards him. And then Daniel will learn the rules of the kingdom of heaven. Somehow he realized he could live for his God separate from any city or temple, separate from any harsh suffering or pain that he could live for God in any circumstance. And God would back his play. Pray with me. We just take a, a moment to listen Is there an area in your life in particular? that you know that your heart is not turned towards him in that area. Maybe it's the most un-Christ-like circumstance. Maybe it's a relationship. Again, it could be a marriage or a workplace. He's inviting you to live differently than those around you. He's saying, would you, would you trust me in this circumstance? I'm loving and compassionate. I have not given up on you. I know you. Your sin is not too great. The, the shed blood of my son is greater than your sin. 
It's not too late. I don't care how old you are. I'm, I'm here. Would you trust me in that circumstance? I will back your play in the kingdom of God. take a few moments to talk with him about that circumstance.